The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. We would like to invite any of you all, if you're interested in baptism, we're having a meeting at the Creekside Building just after this service, if you're interested in, in getting baptized on October 22nd. Um, also want to recognize, we have with us this morning the entire Temple College basketball guys. You guys can stand up real quick, that'd be great. We'd love to welcome you guys with us this morning. We love the work that Kirby Johnson has done with all of his staff uh, with the young men through that program over the years. He's been a blessing to our community. Um, we're feeding him lunch down, down at the Creekside Building just after the service. Um, I also want to ask all of you all to stand up and just join hands. I'm going to have us pray for just the community of Las Vegas as they have suffered tremendously in the last week. Just join hands and, and let's, let's pray together. Father, we just come before you just in unity as a church and just um, cry out to you for uh, the city and surrounding areas of Las Vegas and just lift them before you. Knowing that you're sovereign, knowing that you're in control, when things seem out of control. We pray, God, for um, the church, especially in that city, to rise up and be uh, ministering to the people that are suffering and those that have lost loved ones. We also pray that the city that is known for sin would become a city that's known for the gospel. And a city known for your church. We pray, God, that, that in spite of the tragedy, that your church would rise up and be seen and be evident in that city and that place. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're in the, the second week of a series on the church, and uh, there is a small group study guide, so if you're not getting this, we want to invite you to get into a small group and be part of our our small group study. This is an amazing thing that they've put together for us, along with some other readings as well. Highly encourage you to get into a small group and, and talk about what it means to be part of the church. So I've been really excited for this series for a good while now. I think I've told you before about all the baggage I had in church growing up. I, I grew up in a dysfunctional church and I also worked in a dysfunctional church when I was in college. And, um, and now I work in a church because God has given me a great love for the church. In fact, if you were to ask me, what's your biggest passion for, for students, I would tell you that it's, it's that they love Christ, but they also love his church. And uh, it's, a, it's a huge passion of mine to instill in our students that they love the body of Christ. So I'm excited for the series, but I can also see how it might make some of you nervous. Because when you think about a bunch of pastors coming together and, and talking about the church, um, it could seem sort of cult-like, right? Like we're trying to shape your thoughts on what you should think about the gathering here. And so it can, it can, it can come across as kind of self-interested. It might be like employees at HEB telling you why you should love and support grocery stores, right? I mean, of course they'll say that because they have a vested interest in grocery stores. And pastors can seem to have a, a, a lot of self-interest when it comes to what you should think about the church, I mean, you pay our salaries. So, of course, we're going to say, yeah, yeah, be committed to the church, right? So it can seem like it's, it's a self-interested thing, but I want to just let you know 
I know the heart of our elders, I know the heart of our leadership team. Um, this is not a bunch of self-interested preachers coming to you and saying, you know, you should step up your church game. I mean, this is us humbly coming to the scriptures and just trying to figure out what does God say about his people, the church. And just coming to the scriptures humbly and, and seeking out what he wants to say to us. Last week, Gary uh, gave us this big picture view of the church and talked about God's heart for the church. And so today we're dealing with this question. Why should church history matter? Now, I contend that most of us in the room, we don't care much about church history. You know, we care about what the Bible says. We care about what happened uh, here in this book, and we care about the now, but we don't tend to care about much in between, between then and now, right? And, um, but I, I do think we care about history, just not church history, for example, how many of you all have ever done the Ancestry.com thing? Raise your hand. Okay, so about three of you. Good. Um, <laughs> but, but, but these things are popular now, DNA.com, Ancestry.com, because people want to know their histories, their personal histories. In fact, um, I've never done the Ancestry.com thing, but my sister-in-law's uh, dad was in the CIA. I hope I can say that, by the way. Um, it was back in the 80s, so if the Russians probably know who he is by now. But, um, but anyway, he, he likes research, lots of research. So he gave our family this gift, this genealogy gift. This is done by the CIA. They got a file on me now, I guess. I don't know. But, but he um, gave us this genealogy, and I'm reading through it. And I'm just amazed. He traces our family back to um, a guy named James Tate, born in 1662 in Virginia. And then he, James Tate, is actually in the same town, the same parish, as, as, as Martha and, and George Washington. And I'm thinking, did my family know the Washingtons? That's pretty, that's pretty cool. And then I'm reading through and I realize there's a guy named uh, Jesse Tate who fought in the American Revolution. He served in the Virginia State Navy, served on a ship called the Dragon. That's pretty amazing to think about. And then I read this guy named Oliver Tate. He, he gives his life in the Civil War. And you start to realize that this is, this is our personal history. And so I think we, we see more of that. People are, are valuing more their, their personal histories. But I'll also tell you that, um, that many of you here in the room, you value uh, American history and, and Texas history, right? And we all know that Texas has state pride. I mean, I don't call it that, but you call it state pride. And... and we know every state looks down on somebody. So where I'm from, Virginia, we, we look down on West Virginia, North Carolina, it's South Carolina, and Texas looks down on everybody, right? <laughs> Everyone is inferior to Texas, right? But being an American or being a Texan is not about just who we are now. It's about who we have been as a people. So when you say, I've got American pride or I've got Texas pride, you're saying, I've got pride about our past and our history and who we are as a people. And this is the same is true of the church, because you and I are part of the church, both past and present. And so when you say you're part of the church, that means you're not just part of this, you're part of the church in all time and all places. And this is how we should see ourselves, and, and, and how we see our past will affect how we live in the here and now, I think, here in Temple, Texas. So we're going to be in... Acts chapter 9, starting in verse uh, 31. We're just going to be in one little verse there in Acts 9, verse 31. And I want to give you some definitions here. 
And the first thing I want to define for you is, you know, what is the local church? And how does the Bible talk about the local church? So when you think of local church, I think most of you think, you know, you think local, you think of Temple Bible Church, which that makes sense. But the word church appears 114 times in the New Testament. 90 of those refer to the local church. And so in Acts 9.31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So there are many local churches in these regions and the expectation throughout the New Testament is that believers are part of the church, the local church. That didn't mean just attending a service, walking in anonymously and sitting down and hearing a sermon and then walking out. But that meant being involved in community. And I would just, I would just tell you this morning that if you're someone who, who, who thinks that you can just kind of come in anonymously and that's, all, that's what church is, now being part of the local church means that you're, you're using your gifts and you're also experiencing the one another's that the New Testament talks about. This is being part of the local church. Now, you know we don't have official membership at TBC. Now, the church I grew up in, we had official membership. And I always thought that that seemed a little bit strange to me. I understand it more now, but I thought at the time it seemed kind of strange because it just felt like, is this a fraternity or a sorority or a country club? And your name's on a list and you, get, you pay your dues and you get some, um, some special privileges? What, what does it mean to be a member of a church? And so don't, don't think of membership in the sense of your name's on a list and you're special, but think of it like this. In Romans 12, Paul talks about the church being a, like a body. And so don't think of membership being name on a list. Think of membership like we're, we're members of each other. We, we belong to each other. We're connected to each other. And... So if someone says, are you a member of TBC, you can, say, you can say, yeah, I'm a hand, or I'm a foot, or an earlobe. I mean, I just, I just want to be a fingernail, that's all I ask for, just something, you know, just something small. But you shouldn't see yourself just as part of local church, but also part of the church universal. And so here's how we define what the universal church is. The universal church is all Christians and all times and all places are connected through Christ. So we're supposed to be part of a local body, but also part of something much bigger than just a local body. And this is the universal church that we're also a part of. In Matthew 16, 18, uh, it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this, bo- on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gary talked about this passage last week. And we know that Peter's name, before it was Peter, it was what? It was Simon, right? And if Jesus changes your name, well then, that's going to be your new name. So it goes from Simon to Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, he says, I will build my church on your confession, and also the other apostles, their confession as well. And he says, I'll build my church, and when he says, I'll build my church, he means the church universal. This is the church universal now. So here's my goal with you this morning. I want you to see this morning how your connection to the universal church, the church in all time and all places, can fuel your love for and your commitment to 
the local church in the here and now. That's my goal today. So this picture here is, is how we should see ourselves in the universal church. The universal church encompasses all the local churches throughout all time and all places. And this is how we should view ourselves. But there are two mistakes that we often make. And here's the first one. The first one is having a big view of the universal church, but a small view of the local church. And here's how this might play out in real life. Someone who says, you know, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. But I'll I'll remind you, what what does Jesus call his church? He calls her his, his bride, right? So what if someone said to me, they said, Dave, you know, I like you, you're a great guy, but I just can't stand your wife. How is that conversation going to go? Right? You know, Jesus, or how about this one? Um, the, the church is also called the body of Christ. And so imagine men today going home to your wife and saying something like, you know, honey, I love you. I just don't like your body. I mean, how's that conversation going to go? You see, Jesus, these metaphors are used on purpose. The church is his bride and also his body because he's one with his bride. You can't separate Jesus from his body. So we, we can't say a statement like that. Look at what Scott Sauls says here in this quote. He says, at her best and at her worst, Jesus loves his church. He laid down his life for her. He will never leave or forsake her. He will complete the work he started in her in other words, Jesus never looked for more of God by having less of the church. Instead, he married her. The church is the chosen, beloved bride of Christ. What does it say about us if the church is good enough for the Father to adopt, for the Spirit to inhabit, and for Jesus to marry, but not good enough for us to join? You and I cannot say we love Jesus, but don't have love for his church. We can't say that. Or how about... How about this one? And this is going to step on some toes. I'm sorry in advance, but um, what about, I don't need to attend church. I'll just watch live stream. That's not that important. I don't need to be around real people. I'll just watch it and, you know, that'll, that'll be fine. And I would simply just challenge. I would say, well, okay, what about the spiritual gifts? And what about the one another's? Those can't happen through a screen. So you've, we've got to be connected into the local church. Or how about this one? I study the Bible at Starbucks with my friend, and I don't need the church to do that. I mean, I got Jesus, I got the Bible, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. I don't need the church to do that. But I remind you, that that verse didn't say, on this rock, I will build a Bible study in a coffee shop. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, you and, your, you and your buddy at Starbucks will not prevail against the gates of hell. The church does that. I mean, what are we going to do? Dump our coffee on the devil? Take that, Satan, right? I mean, this is the church. This is the collective. This is the people of God this is talking. Not, not, just, not just you and your little friend at Starbucks. And so these are, you have to see yourself as part of the local church, but also part of the church universal. And so 
I want to talk now about the other mistake that we make, and that is having a small view of the universal church, but a big view of the local church. And you might ask, well, how's that a mistake? That seems like what you're wanting us to be in favor of. And here's how this plays out. You see yourself as just part of TBC, and that's, that's it. Yeah, I'm committed, I go, I attend, I'm a part of things, and I'm plugged in. What more could they want? But here's the reality. If we don't, if you don't see yourself as part of a bigger story, and you don't see yourself as part of a bigger thing that God is doing, then when things get tough in the local church, you'll just bail. If there's not something else driving you and your recognition of, I am connected to the universal church, and that's not driving your commitment to the local church, you will bail when things get tough in the local church. When I was in college, I went on a mission trip to Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. And this was an amazing, my, my first time ever to go to Africa, and it was an amazing experience. And we'd spent about 48 hours or so trying to get to Africa, and we finally land in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, and we're starting, we get off the plane, we go into the downtown area of Bulawayo, and um, they have a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. And I remember thinking, that's amazing, like they, have a, they have a KFC in the middle of Africa, Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. But you know what else they had in Bulawayo? They had churches. And I don't mean churches chicken. I mean they had real (laughs) churches. They had Jesus-worshiping, God-honoring, Bible-teaching churches. And I went, went to this one church, and I was amazed at how just similar they were to us. And the same Bible and the same Jesus and some of the same songs. And I was just blown away. I thought... This is a miracle that the church is here in this city. And then I started thinking, well, they're actually closer to where all this began than we are over here in the U.S. Maybe we're the miracle. Maybe we're the ones that are the miracle. So when you see yourself connected to these, some of these places, you've been on trips like this, it's, it's, it's inspiring and powerful to see yourself as part of the same whole, knowing that we worship the same Christ. Worship the same Savior and read the same Bible. And as they experience persecution and sometimes poverty and other things, and we're comfortable here, it can it can fuel us and say, Yes, I can I can bear up in Temple Tech, because they're bearing up in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, or in the Ukraine, or wherever else it might be. And so it's it's inspiring to see the church, the universal church in the here and now. But you and I are not just connected to the church in all places. We are connected to the church throughout all time and all history. And so we'll spend the rest of our time just talking about what this looks like. You and I have more in common with a third century Christian in North Africa than we do with your unbelieving neighbor down the street. And it's because of Jesus. You've got more in common with that person than you do with your unbelieving neighbor down the street. But here's the problem. If you and I downplay the church universal, we won't care much about church history at all. We'll, um, but the Bible says we should care about history. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and also chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1 of Hebrews 11. 
<clears throat> Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So this is the famous faith chapter. And in this uh, chapter we hear, if you read the whole thing, you're going to hear about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab. And here's why all they're, listed, they're all listed together, because all these people had something right in front of them that didn't make a lot of sense. But they were able to see past that and see towards the hope that God offered them. And they saw his promises, and they lived in light of those promises. And so, what is faith? Faith is essentially seeing the unseen. It's to be able to look past your situation and see something that God's promising, his hope. And especially in Jesus Christ and the gospel and the cross. And I know right now this is some of you. You come in here and you've got things right in front of you that are difficult and scary and intimidating. And faith is being able to look past those things and look at Jesus and the cross and knowing that there is something that right now is currently unseen that is more true than your current circumstances. So faith is seeing the unseen. And, and the writer writes these words to give the people back then hope. These words are here for us to have hope. And because of their faith in that time, look what some of these old saints endured. Look down at the end of the chapter, uh, verse 36 and through 40, Hebrews 11. It says, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Some people think that verse 37 is about Jeremiah and Isaiah. I think we forget uh, the suffering that these prophets went through and how their life ended because of what they were saying and writing. And then in verse 38, it says, um, it says, of whom the world was not worthy. What it's saying is that the world wasn't even worthy of these people to be sent into their midst with these, these messages, and yet God in his grace sent them anyway because he's a God of grace and mercy. And look down at verse 40. The end of verse 40, it says that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Do you realize what that verse is saying? It's saying that not only are we joined to these saints now, but we're going to be fully joined in glorification later on to these saints that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. That is powerful to think about. We talked about genealogies. Can you imagine if you could flip through your spiritual genealogy? Imagine if someone print this off for you and they said, here's your spirit, and this person told this person, this person told this person, and now here you are, a Christian in Temple, Texas. What if you could see your, your, your spiritual genealogy on paper? How powerful would that be? But you know what? Here's what's really cool. Is that one day, you won't just see it on paper, you'll see it in the flesh, You'll be with people in glorification that had influence and then influence and influence, and here you are as a Christian sitting here today. 
So your spiritual genealogy is not just something on a paper. You're going to see it in person, in the flesh, one day in glory. And that's what this passage is about. Us being glorified together with these saints in glory with Jesus. As the writer recounts the past here in Hebrews chapter 11, his goal is to give these readers something to hang on to. And so you look in Scripture and we look at the concept of remembering. We could say it like this. Remembering the past sustains us in the present and gives us a hope for the future. Remembering the past gives us sustenance in the, in the present so we can press on. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to give these people um, in these passages. Look down now at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We know that when athletes run, when they train, they put on weights on their ankles and their, and their wrists and their backs so they can run under duress, so that when they, when they go, go run a real race, they can take it all off and they feel, they feel free and they can run faster. This is how they train. And so this is the image here, that many of us in our sin, we have weight, we're carrying an impediment, we're carrying weight. And so the writer is charging, he's saying, throw off the weight of sin so you can run with endurance this race that God has called you to run. Then the picture here is pretty amazing, this cloud of witnesses. This is a picture, an image of all these saints of old, cheering on the saints in the present as you run the race that they once ran. It's just a powerful picture to, to imagine. If you want to ask the question, why does history matter? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us why history matters, because as you think about these saints of the past, it gives you an endurance in the present as you run this race that God has called you to run. This next picture is of a man named Dathan Ritzenhain. And he is a, was a runner for an American runner, a talented runner. In 2009, New York Times featured an article about him. And he was training hard but not getting any better. He plateaued in his training regimen. And he tried, he lived in Colorado. He tried to move from Colorado to a lower altitude to move to um, Oregon. And, uh, but that didn't help. He still plateaued. He couldn't get faster. And then someone told him about group training. They said, get some high-level people around you and start running with them again. So he began doing group training. And, and suddenly his times began to improve and, and take off. And eventually he went on to break the American record for the 5,000 meters. He said this in the article. He said, running alone, you can't push yourself as hard. You feed off the energy of other people. Now, I'm not a runner. My wife is a runner. I am someone who runs. I am not a runner. But there's more history. You can attest, like, when you're with other people, there's something about that, you know. Um, I call it, I don't want to get embarrassed, but there's something else about it that encourages you and exhorts you to keep on running with running with other people. And there's even more history here to this, because 
In the 70s and 80s, the Americans dominated long-distance running. But in the 90s, things changed. Americans started hiring personal running coaches and trainers. And they started running by themselves. And their performances suffered because of it. And somebody realized that the three most successful countries, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Japan, all trained in groups. And so Americans began to embrace this idea of group training Again, and their times began to pick up. And I think there's a profound picture here spiritually because this is how many of us approach the Christian life. We approach it alone. Or, or, we, get, or we get the personalized coaching of experts. You know, I don't, I don't need to come to a local church and, and ask that older man about family and marriage because I can go to Lifeway and get a book by the experts I can do podcasts. I can do video. I can get the best in the world at my fingertips. I don't need the local church. And so we're approaching this thing with like personal life coach experts. And yet I think we're, we're suffering because of that. And this is why you and I need community. It's why we have to know history and understand there's a cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on as we run this race that God's called us to run. So you need, we need the local church. We need the church universal as we run this race. You have to see yourself as part of something bigger than just the the here and now. So I want to ask the question, where are we now in our culture today? There's an excellent section of uh, Tim Keller's book, Center Church. He talks about the church relationship to culture. He talks about it in seasons. And the first season he describes is, is winter, when the culture is hostile to the church, and then there's little fruit. You get to be, this be parts of the Middle East today. Then there's spring. The church is persecuted by the culture, but there's some growth. That might be China today. There is summer. This, this is the church is highly regarded by the culture. This might be the U.S. many, many years ago. Then you have autumn. This is the church increasingly marginalized in a post-Christian culture. I think this is the U and yet the U.S. more and more today. So where are we today? I think in some parts of our country, it's, it's, it's winter. In other parts, I think even here, it's autumn, I think, heading towards winter. Recently, the Barner Research Group wanted to find out how post-Christian we are here in the U.S., And that means a large percentage of people would say they don't believe in God, the Bible has errors, and they're not part of a local church. And so once you reach a certain percentage of that, they would say you are considered post-Christian or moving in that direction. Now, the highest-ranking places are places you'd you'd most expect, so places like the Northeast and Northwest here in the U.S. Now, out of the four largest cities in in Texas, um, so San Antonio, Austin, Houston, and DFW, which one do you think is the least Christian? Austin. Must be a lot of Aggies in here. They're like, Austin! I know that they're supposed to hiss, right? Aggies are supposed to hiss. So yes, it's Austin. It's actually number 32 on, um, out of 100 cities. But do you know what other city is on that list? Temple, Texas. Number 64 on their, their research list. 
And I don't know how accurate all that is, but it's just to say that I think in the Bible Belt, we are becoming more and more post-Christian, as they say. More so than you think that we are. And here's why all this matters. Because if, if we forget our past, we're going to forget how to minister in the present. And, and so I want to I bring all this down to earth for a minute because I think this is really important. This past week, I took my kids uh, to Freddy's because I'm a good dad. And, and we're sitting there eating Freddy's and we're eating hamburgers and, and, um, and fries and custard and just having a good time. And if you go to Freddy's around the wall, they have um, the pictures of the guy who founded Freddy's. And I guess he has a lot of a military background in, in, in his life. So you see all those pictures of him in, in different um, places he's been. And I saw that as this contrast, this stark contrast of we're eating, enjoying the pleasures of life, and yet there's this reminder on the walls of how costly all this was. And you and I um, experience things in this life that we just take for granted and we think, yeah, well, this is just the way it is. And we, real- we don't realize that, no, this was, this was costly. This cost something. And then you think about um, the church and we, we come in here on a Sunday or a Wednesday and, and, and you get a parking space and you come in here and, or, you're, or you're changing diapers in the nursery or you're stirring your coffee in the lobby, in the air-conditioned lobby, um, or you're gluing little um, cotton balls to a piece of paper in the children's <laughs> ministry. And we're just walking through life on a Sunday and yet we forget how costly all this was. I mean, just your, your Bible, your English Bible, do you know there was blood spilt over just getting the English Bible? This was, this was costly. This cost something. And so I think it's important for us to remember and understand that you and I, we need this, this past, the church through the ages, to understand and to sustain our commitment in the present. If we don't understand what God has done, we're going to miss what he's doing here right now. So this morning, I haven't given you this big timeline of church history. That wasn't my point this morning. But I think I have to remind you, though, that um, at the end of this month, October 31st, is not just Halloween, but it's also the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther went to the the door at Wittenberg and nailed the 95 theses to the church door there and sparked a reformation that would change much of the world and how they understood the gospel. So let's watch this video as we highlight him. There was a time when many had forgotten the grace and love of God's only begotten. Losing sight of what mattered, the body of Christ stumbled and staggered, believing that heaven could be purchased. They gathered in churches thinking what got you saved was the money you gave. Trading virtue for vice, they put a price on forgiveness, indulgences, a permission slip for sin, 
Available for a small financial transaction, this is what they called fate put into action. Trusting in the power of their own goodness rather than the power of Christ's forgiveness. Then came Martin Luther, an unlikely resistance. He saw the flaws in the system. A man who became a monk, a rebel who became a reformer, a leader who challenged the beliefs of the day to remind them that what really matters is faith. 1517, compelled by all he had seen, Luther decided he could not stand idly by and watch truth of God traded in for a lie. With a quest in his heart and a quill in his hand, he began to write day and night, scribbling and scrawling, ink flowing with inspiration, pioneering a reformation, penning a declaration of total and utter dependence of repentance. 95 theses, 95 questions, a message to the people in power, a manifesto to the people in the pews. Good news! You don't have to buy your way into heaven. It is a gift freely given to all who ask, a door open to all who knock, a life found by all who search. This is God's true church, a living temple of heaven on earth, not a building with a steeple or a cathedral, but a gathering of common people who know that salvation comes from faith alone by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Like a madman on a mission, with a passion for God's vision, for a world free from religion, he dreamt of better days when the whole human race would know that we are saved by grace through faith. Luther, the father of all Protestants, with protests in every step, marched up to the castle church of Wittenberg. With a silent prayer to the God of ages, he took in his hands the 95 pages, held them up to that church door, knowing everything would change from this day forth. And for the second time in human history, the hope of all humanity was nailed to a piece of wood. This was not just any door. This was a doorway to a brand new future, a brand new community filled with the power and presence of God. Every person a priest, every member a missionary, everyone empowered and fully engaged, contributing, distributing God's presence, being present in every place and situation with the message of faith and salvation, a new reformation, transformation through the power and presence of God changing our lives and through us transforming the world. Listen to these words. If church history teaches us anything, it is that we cannot afford to be a vacillating church. We minister to a people who are in great need of hearing truth. We dare not make an attempt to soft pedal that glorious truth. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful and thankful that you've called us to be part of the local church, the local body, but also we are part of this church universal throughout all time and all places. And we thank you that you have joined us and connected us through history, but also you will connect us in glorification one day. You will, we will see these people in the flesh, and we praise you for that truth. We pray, God, that you'd help us to never forget what you've done throughout the ages so that we can um, have fuel to keep doing what we're doing here in Bell County. We pray that you give us 
this commitment, this love for the local church in the same way that you bled and died for the local church, but also the church universal. We pray this in your name. Amen.